0: Of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. If you have your Bibles uh, open to first Peter, we're still in chapter 1, and uh, there should be a Pew Bible somewhere around there. Uh, if you didn't have your Bible this morning, that's fine. 1 uh, Peter, I should have looked up the numbers to tell you exactly that it's on this page. But it's in the New Testament. It's almost all the way toward the end. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love for you to take that pew Bible that you found there and put your name in the, in the front of it and take that home so that you can study God's Word uh, at home. We would love that. Uh, since we do have some you know, uh, people teaching in the back, we have rotations and all that, let me bring you really, really quickly up to speed of where we are so far in First Peter. It is a letter that was what we call a circular letter meant that it wasn't just to one church, but it was meant to go to a lot of churches. And it was kind of rotated around. These churches are in Asia Asian minor. And the background of these people is that for the most part, they're Gentiles. That is, they were not Jewish people that now have come to trust Christ as their Savior and Lord. These were people that were from all kinds of backgrounds, but not really from a Jewish or even maybe a religious background. And so now they're following Christ, but something really traumatic has happened in the world all of a sudden what we see is a lot of persecution happening to the Christians. Now, folks, we don't know the exact date. It would have been so helpful for Peter to write down at the bottom, for John to write down at the bottom, for Paul to say, and by the way, today's date is so-and-so-and-so. And 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 we don't have that. But we can really kind of place this somewhere around 64 A.D., uh, you know, the the mid-60s A.D. This is a century, a full century after Christ has ascended and rose uh, up to, to heaven. And so these people are kind of, in one way, almost 2nd century Christians. They're new to Christianity, and yet Christianity's been around for about 30 years now, as far as those who are really following Christ and his teachings. And so that's what we begin to see here. But there's this world event that happened that we spoke about a couple weeks ago. Rome burns. A lot of the quadrants of Rome, the the regions of Rome burn, Now, Nero, the emperor at the time, is the one who actually started the fire. History shows us that and kind of proves that out. And yet that wasn't a very popular thing to do. And so being a politician, kind of being somebody that all of a sudden his approval ratings began to go down, he said, well, it wasn't me. It was the Christians. And he puts the whole blame of Rome being burned and them losing some of their homes and some of their familiar spots and all that they were kind of offended by, he puts it on the Christians. And so already there was kind of a push against Christianity, but now it is embedded not just into the Roman authorities, but even the Roman populace. So these people are just not feeling loved. I mean, they really are being persecuted. We talked about some of the just awful things that were happening to Christians at that time, that becoming a Christian sometimes meant as it would today, maybe in a Muslim country, that if you came to know Christ and was baptized, not only would you say, okay, you don't have your job anymore. You may not have your family anymore. The extreme, you may not even have your life anymore. Hey, because you came and followed Christianity, we are so offended by that that we're just cutting you off, or we might even cut you up. And this is what was happening. It was really kind of happening to that kind of violent degree even in this early church setting. So Paul is writing to encourage them, and the first thing that he has done is grounded them in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He says, okay, here's who you are in your salvation. Because remember, he's writing to Christians. It's not that a non-Christian couldn't read this, but he's writing to the churches. This was not an evangelistic letter as much as it was a letter of encouragement. And that really, you know, who you're writing to certainly does change kind of the information that you would give and the tone that you would write with. And so he's writing to the Christians. He's grounded them in this finished work of Christ. And we saw last week that he introduced this challenge to us. He said, I want you to rejoice even though you're still going to have trials. And he actually throws those two words in the same verse, rejoice, even in the midst of various trials. And we talked about that's really challenging us to us. We know how to rejoice. Hey, when good things are happening, we know how to rejoice. We also know what it's like to go through trials. And we don't always associate rejoicing and trials in that same sentence and that that would really be kind of our heartbeat. Okay, I'm going to rejoice in the midst of this very, very difficult time of my life. And yet this is what he's proposed. Has he done that and just said, okay, guys, come on now, just get a little bit stronger? Almost every command, every exhortation that we see in the Word of God, guys, we can take it one of two ways. And this is what we're going to look at today. Because eventually we're going to get to this verse that says, Be ye holy as God is holy. How many of y'all have pretty much mastered that one? See, we hear that. Now, that is an exhortation. It's a command from God. Peter gives it, and he doesn't apologize. He doesn't water down. He doesn't say, okay, just try to be better than your neighbor. Try to be better than you were yesterday. Now he throws this thing out there. Be ye holy as God is holy. And he quotes the Old Testament when God himself said that. Be ye holy as I am holy. Almost every command, I would say really every command, every exhortation in the Bible, we can receive in one of two ways, guys. We can receive as a weight that God has placed upon your shoulders. Be ye holy now. And he puts that, and you're going, I can't do that. You know, I'm trying, but if it's just up to me to be holy, this is a weight. Or he begins to introduce to us this concept, still this challenge, still commanding us to to be holy, but, but he does it in a way that is not meant to be a weight, but that we begin to see that God is growing, maturing us. We'll get to that in just a little while. When he says rejoice in the midst of trials, guys, in one way that can be a weight because as we said last week, if you're not rejoicing in the midst of your trial, what, and and Sherry is, Sherry's over here going, you know, the old country song, you know, uh, the the guy writes, you know, my wife left me, this happened, I lost my job to do, and my dog died, you know, And, and so the country song comes out and you're going, but, you know, what if he added the tag at the end? But I am rejoicing all day long. And he's able to do that. And then we're over here and we're going, no, i got friends in low places. And, you know, and that's more of our tune when trials come to our life. Well, all of a sudden, either we're just not as good of a Christian as they are, they're just better... Or maybe there's just something that we don't understand. See, it becomes a competition at that point. And I don't know that God ever meant for us to have a competition between us about which one of us really looks the most Christ-like today. No, it is a call upon our life, and it is a challenge upon our life, but it is not a competition in our life. It's a call. You are called to be holy. We won't water that down at all. It is a challenge to be holy. It's a challenge to rejoice in the midst of trials. But folks, it is not a competition. You see me struggling to rejoice in my trials. You know what your job is to do? Isn't, well, Bobby's not handling that. No, your job is, Brian, you come by this side. Seth, you come by this side and you start picking me up. Rejoice with those who rejoice and you weep with those that weep. And yet somehow, because we live in such a competitive world, we see these commands of God, and they are commands of God. We're not going to water those down. And all of a sudden, it's a competition. Can I really do this? I can't, but at least I can do it better than... And we can find at least three people that were doing it better, and somehow that brings a little bit of satisfaction. Maybe not to our deep soul, but at least to our mind or our heart for them. Does that make sense? So this is, when we begin to see this, we found last week that this rejoicing in the midst of trials was really a test. And it was not a test that God intended for us to fail. but he wants us to pass. He said, this is a test of your faith. Remember that in verse 6? And so he's talking about this is a test of your faith, but he gives us the answers to the test. And it was found in three things. Hey, you want to be able to rejoice in the midst of trials? Here's three places that you put your firm belief. And it was the integrity of God's love for you, the integrity of God's desire, desire and will for you, and that you just believe that God, even though He's allowing these trials to come in your life, that what God wants for you is something that is really based on His love, on His will and His desire. As you come upon that verse that says, if you'll rejoice in the midst of these trials, you'll face these trials if necessary, we've found out, God is the one, ultimately, He's sovereign over all things. He's ultimately one, not so much causing things, but certainly at least permitting that. So that's a challenge. And so we read, on. that kind of catches up where we are, and then we come to verse 13. And what's the first word in your translation of verse 13? Therefore, therefore. therefore. I think for in most translations, whether you have the NASB, uh, ESV, NIV, King James, most of those are all going to be the word therefore. And again, we're, we're, we're kind of taught whenever we see that word therefore, it's a connecting word and it's going to connect something that he's about to say with something that he's already said. And so we begin to see that he's going to say therefore. And uh, he, uh, verse Peter 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the Bible, and and guys, I hesitate to bring some of these things out. I want us to be very learned people and to know what we're talking about and being grounded in truth. At the same time, I I never want to throw out a word and go, well, he's just kind of, you know, because he went to seminary or something. But remember before when we've talked about indicatives, and we talked about imperatives in the Word of God. Now, I'm not going to make you define it, but do you remember at least knowing those two words? That there's indicative in the Bible and there's imperatives in the Bible. This is really, 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 really important for us to understand that the Bible, and especially the New Testament, is written in this style. And it really is important for us, not so much that no big, long words or anything like that, but to know what's, what they stand for. An, imper- an indicative is... Is telling us what God has already done. Okay? When you see an indicative, it's not going to say, and this is an indicative, but it's going to be a stating what God has already done. An imperative, then, is this challenge, this call. Hey, you do this. So whenever we see a word like therefore, we look before, and what has been established, very much this indicative, what God has done. The first 12 verses of First Peter, as he opens up, is all about what God has done in bringing this salvation to you. God has done this. He has done this. He's given you this inheritance that is imperishable. And he begins to list all the qualities of this future hope that we have. But then as he starts, starts to talk about all the things that God has done, there is a point when responsibility as a follower of Jesus comes in there. And that's when all of a sudden, okay, here's what I challenge you to do. Here's because of this, here's what you do in response. And so in the Bible, throughout the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, especially in the New Testament, it's just written in this form. Here's the indicative. Here's what God has done. Here's what you do in response. So we see these words like, therefore. God has done this. Therefore, here's how you should live. Verse 13 is the start of that. And in this verse, he's continuing it on and saying, okay, rejoice. But he says, I want you to, to do something with your minds. And he begins to illustrate here that there's a battle. One thing that I love about the Bible, is this is just perfectly honest about, hey, this is not a piece of cake. This Christian life isn't some, something that is just really simplistic. He says, no, there is a battle going on. And in that one verse, we see these three things, guys. The reality of the battle, that we are in a battle. Would you agree with that one so far? That we're in a battle. Secondly, it even talks about the reality of how long the battle will last. Kind of the time frame. It started when you were saved. Salvation, what he's already pointed to. How long is it going to last? To the revelation. Now, when is that? We don't know, but it's kind of the end. And so the Bible's real, real. Hey, guys, as long as you're kind of walking terra firma here, as long as you're kind of walking here, understand that some days are going to be better than other days. Some days are going to be rejoicing. Some days are going to be weeping. I, I'm just telling you, you will face some trials here. Trials are a, a certainty, and they're really a certainty up until the time that God calls us home. How many of you are greatly encouraged at this point? The third thing that we find out here is that he, he really tells us where this battle is going to take place. If you had to just pick out where would you say this battle really takes place, where do spiritual battles really take place in our lives, in our minds? Now, we have been so geared, especially, I think, in this last generation, to become so emotionally oriented that we base our days on our emotions, and we're, that's really stressed, But it's really not biblical. And it's not really a great way to live your life. I mean, there are some people that, you know, you can tell exactly they wear all their feelings on their sleeves. I'm kind of one of those people. I I can't hide sometimes if I'm upset, whether that's an anger upset, whether that's a kind of a uh, my day's been messed up kind of upset. You know, I just can't go in a room and go, hey, I'm happy to be here. Are you happy to be here, too? We're emotionally based. We don't apologize for emotions. God is the one that gave you emotions. Those are real. But when it comes to spiritual battles, if you're truly going to be able to rejoice in the midst of trials, is that just an emotional battle? Or do you think that's more of a battle that goes on right here? He says, man, you prepare your mind. The battlefield is here. This battle is already going on in our lives, and it's something that we see. He even uses military terms. How many of you this last week girded up your loins? (laughs) You know, it's Monday morning, you go, okay, I'm going to gird up my loins. Anybody know what that means? Don't be afraid. I mean, I, I think some of you actually would know what... Seth, tell us what that means. And it can be very simplistic. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, if you're going hear him, basically, excellent answer. He said, back in those days, they wore robes. I mean, we know two things from all the movies about Christ. That they wore robes and they spoke in, with an English accent. Okay? Was, we know that about biblical times. Now, we see these long robes. And so when it was time to truly go into something with haste, and especially for battle, You know, if it was a soldier or something like that, you notice that a lot of the soldiers wore something that was a little bit shorter. But if you are called into battle, it's kind of hard to run. I'm not going to demonstrate. and I don't want anybody else to demonstrate this morning. (laughs) If you have this long, you know, you're tripping over yourself. So what they would do, they would be called to gird up their loins. And that basically, as you said, you would take the, the bottom part of that cloak and, the, and you would pull it up, and you would you had a belt, and you would tuck that in. So basically, you just went from a long dress to a miniskirt, okay? <laughs> and now you have the ability to kind of go faster. Now, this is a biblical concept that's not just New Testament. It is not. It is kind of a military term, but it wasn't just in military. And the whole thing is an expression of there's a sense of urgency. So here's what he says, okay, how many of you all have a robe on your mind? You don't have a robe on your mind. What does he mean about gird up the loins of your mind? Because that's the little interpretation there. Prepare your minds for action. Christianity is not a call into mental nothingness. Folks, it is a call into mental battle. It really is. It's not for just those that want to be. I'm not saying that it's complicated. You don't have to be intelligent. It's not about intelligence, but it is engaging in the mind. And so it's not for just, ah, you know, it doesn't matter. No, these battles do matter. And when we begin to look about this girding up your minds, there's a sense of being prepared for battle, but there's also a sense, in a nostalgic way, if we look back to the Old Testament, to kind of say, okay, not only preparing for battle, but be preparing for what is ahead. How many of y'all remember that God called out a people in the Old Testament? The Israelites. Abraham, these are going to be your people. I'm going to make of you a great nation. God did all the instigating of that. Abraham's faithfulness, he rewards that. They become a people. We call them the Jewish people, the Israelites. A lot of different names. These are God's people. Well, because of their own disobedience, uh, they find themselves sometimes in not-so-good situations. They find themselves actually in captivity in a place called Egypt. They don't want to be there. They're God's people. They think they're pretty special. And yet, at the same time, they're actually slaves and captives in this place. And God does something where he's going to bring them out. It's all found in the book of Exodus, where they exit out of this land of captivity. And they did that after this celebration. God does this series of miracles. And the last one is he brings uh, an angel of death to, to the folks that are not believers there. And he... Passes that angel of death passes over other people that have put their faith and trust into God, and they had a meal, the Passover meal. How many of y'all have kind of somewhat heard that before? Okay, Exodus twelve eleven. This is linking it to girding up your loins. I want you to notice something here because it, to me it's just one of those things where God is saying, okay, not only get ready for battle, but there's a sense of urgency. Not just where you have been, but where I am taking you to. Look what it says, Exodus twelve eleven. He's talking about this Passover meal. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Is he saying, okay, guys, y'all just enjoy this, sit around for days? You know, just spend as much time as you want doing this. What do you get from His command to them? Be ready. Many of you know because we've said it every opportunity that we can that we're going to be grandparents soon, okay? <laughs> and my daughter, who was in the town this weekend, she says, well, do you have your go bag ready? I said, not yet, but I'm, I'm going to be getting ready. And what's the go-back? That when she calls from North Carolina and says, little Ellie Ray's on the way, that we go. So we're going to have sandals on our feet, staff in our hand. We're going to eat in haste because we're going to head to go see our new granddaughter, hopefully, in a couple months. Something exciting. Are you living in this world right now? with that sense of urgency. Because one day Christ is coming back, guys. (laughs) And he hasn't called for us to be pessimistic about it, like, man, I just can't wait to get out of here. There is a part of that. There is a part of it. Because, you know, even John says, man... Hurry the day, hurry the day, come quickly, Lord Jesus. There is this sense of urgency, but it wasn't from this doomsday kind of attitude. It wasn't that He just went, I can't wait for what you have for me, God. I just can't wait. And as we have times of rejoicing in the midst of trials, this is God's command. As He's about to call us to be ye holy as He is holy, and His command to us in this it's okay guys as you live in this world I want you to live with the readiness to know that in any day I can call you home I want you to have that kind of, I want you to gird your mind that, that whole phrase that you've probably been asked it before or you've been challenged by a pastor to, to think about it or maybe a book if you only had three days to live how would you live that's not simplistic it's, it's not a bad question if you knew how many of you have ever been heard a preacher, maybe even this preacher, you know like, if Jesus was coming back tomorrow, how would you live today? Is that a proper question? Is that a, is that a biblical question? You're kind of scared to answer, aren't you? <laughs> I don't know. The answer is yes. <laughs> That's what he's saying. in a way he's saying, okay guys. You know, not just that I could come back. Well, I have something for you. I want you to gird up your noise. I truly want you to live in the anticipation that I am active and living. And even when you're facing battle in your life, just know that I could come back. This day of Jesus that he talks about there, this day that, that Jesus is going to come back and the world's going to kind of, as we would know it, kind of come to, at least at this part of history, an end of this part of history, he said, man, that could happen any day. Therefore... Here's how you live. With your minds girded, prepared. Simple fact is, there's sometimes we get so overwhelmed with grief that um, we lose sight of that. There's other times that we so get so overwhelmed with rejoicing in, in the things of the world, and there's nothing... Please hear me, guys. There is nothing wrong with celebrating that you just got a new job. There's nothing wrong with celebrating, hey, I just found Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. There's nothing you know, wrong about celebrating. Hey, we're going to have a baby or a grandbaby. He doesn't say no those things just because they're of this world, that they're not important. What he says is, okay, guys, keep this eternal perspective. Don't just get focused here because if you put only your focus here, you're going to have so many ups and downs, you're going to feel like a yo-yo. And so I I, I want you to gird your mind. I want you to be ready for battle today might have been a really good day, but tomorrow may not be so good of a day. Gird up your loins. Be ready. Well, what's the last sentence there, Sherry, real loud? It is the Lord's pastor. It's the Lord's passage. Again, what we see is that God is the one who is sovereign over all these things. You know, God isn't saying, because I don't know. I just want you to be ready because I don't know what this Pharaoh guy is going to do. And all this is out of my control. I have no power here. Now he says, this is the Lord's. I'm in control, guys. I'm the one that's kind of, you know, telling you what to do because I am sovereign over all these things. That's why we preach God's sovereignty week after week after week after week because this is our truth. This is our foundation. Because there's going to be days that your life is so far over to one side in trial that you're going to go, I just think that, I mean, even God has forgotten me. And he wants us to remind him. no, he's at least allowed this. He hasn't caused it, but he's at least allowed this. Okay, let's go back and, and see now. He says, okay, be sober-minded. He says, okay, gird up your mind and be sober-minded. The first thing that comes to us, especially in the old Baptist church, yeah, they should be sober-minded. Don't need to be doing any of that, yeah. That is not what he's talking about. He's not talking about, okay, refrain from this. Certainly he's not talking about being in a state of drunkenness, okay? But he's not making a comment here of your alcohol intake. What he's talking about is being sober-minded. In other words, be clear-minded. This would not just be alcohol. This would be anything in our life that can distract us, cloud our way of clear thinking, okay? Certainly, to drink excessively, That would cloud you. He wants you to be sober in that sense. But what about relationships? Can relationships cloud our thinking? Have you ever been in love and been in a quandary? Because maybe your convictions told you one thing, but then your emotions told you another thing? There's a part of wisdom that cried out, hey, this is the wise thing. And others said, but I really like him. I really like her. There's a lot of things that can make our mind not so sober, not clear thinking. And so the Bible tells us, okay, as we approach this, as we come upon these trials of life, to be sober-minded. Be alert. First Peter 5, 8. Same book, same, our same letter. He's going to say this at the end. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, he said there's a lion out there. Now, I can tell you this. We don't have lions here for the most part unless you go to the zoo. But I promise you, if Jeff came in this morning from the back with the kids and Jeff said, hey, guys, don't alarm anybody, but just be careful as you're going out after church to your cars because we did see a snake. How many of y'all are going to be sober-minded and watchful and careful? Don't like snakes. What if he said it was a really big snake, and it looked fierce, and it looked hungry? Man, I'm being sober-minded. Uh, I mean, I, I love you, Brian, but I'm not going to be talking and looking you in the eye as we're walking to the car. I'm going to be looking down. I'm going to be watchful. I'm going to be careful. And this is the instruction that we have. Look at the next one, First Thessalonians 5, 6. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So is this just talking about alcohol, guys? No. It's about a state of mind, of clarity of thinking, awake alertfulness, knowing that there's things out there that are designed to trip us up. He says, I just want you to be on the alert. So we are to be ready, to be alert. For how long? Well, we saw that back in verse 13. Until the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ. In a way, that can be kind of discouraging. So, Bobby, you're basically saying that trials are going to come up until the day that we leave this world? And the biblical answer is yes. So we look at it as just as trials and that we're not going to reach some age of panacea. You don't have to raise your hand, but we do have some folks here that are over 70. Okay, Is the age... Of, okay, and Doug, because, you know, <laughs> you raised your hand. I didn't have to speak Have you reached the age of panacea to where now life is just so golden, these golden years of 70 plus, that there is no problems and there is no trouble anymore? (laughs) Wouldn't it be great if somebody said, hey, look, you get to the grand old age of whatever. And since I said grand old, I better not put an age in there. Uh, (laughs) But you get to this age... And really, the earthly troubles do dissipate; they just kind of go away. No, you may not remember them, but they don't go away. Okay. <laughs> now he said, "Until the day of Jesus Christ, to the time of Revelation." In other words, guys. In other words, he, how kind he is to not promise us something that it, that is not going to be delivered to us, but rather that he would say, "Okay, let me equip you for this." knowing that this is a truth let me at least equip you for facing trials and even facing trials in an attitude of mindset of rejoicing so what does he tell us to set our hope fully on the grace fully on the grace the grace of salvation the grace of, we said it last week if you're a christian you have been saved you are being saved and you will be saved there's an aspect of grace. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we're, that salvation is a progressive thing. No, to me, it is the minute you place trust and faith in what Christ has already accomplished, it is done. You don't progress. You don't go from, okay, you're 25% Christian, so don't get that in mind. Just understand that salvation made you instantly a Christian, right with the Holy God, because of what he accomplished. But is there a, a factor of grace in your life today just that you woke up this morning, just to give you friends to hang out with that would encourage you in the Lord rather than encourage you in some other way, His grace continues, and there 's a future grace until that day of culmination that the Bible talks about. and so here he says, look you 're going to need this grace so you put your whole hope purely on that. why don't you put your whole hope on that. When God calls us and to be able to rejoice in the midst of trials, when he tells us to, to be holy, as we'll see, he's not trying to exhaust us, folks. He's trying to prepare us. This is not a weight that he sees how good can you be. No, he says, I want you to know that because of this salvation, because of the grace that God has already extended to you, he will give you the ability to, to be able to navigate this. It looks like it's a minefield filled with bombs, but God will give you the grace. To walk and even rejoice in the midst of walking in this minefield. See, that's the reality of... That's why I just like how God says, Look, this is the real world. I mean, how many of you have felt that there's been days, if not weeks, if not other periods of time in your life, that you really were walking in a minefield in this world? And that one false step... Not so much your eternal security, not so much, you know, your soul, or anything, but a relationship, you know, your the things in your life. And so he's preparing us for that. The Christian life is not meant to be exhausting. Look at verse 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. He he, he repeats the words of, of God himself. This is not a weight that he just puts upon you. This is not, please get this, this is not a task to be performed. It's actually a way to become free. If you see these words as a task to be performed, What a heavy weight. What a heavy weight. Because you and I prove every day that we can't be holy. You and I prove every day that there are passions that still are part of that ignorance. Would you agree with that? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Would you agree that there's still a part of you that is still contending with these former passions and that those passions, biblically stated, are really kind of ignorant? I mean... Please, please don't hear this the wrong way. I, I, I will continue to counseling. and I will, I love counseling. I love helping people. But I guarantee you, if that part of us, that old part of us, that was passions and ignorance, my counseling schedule would go from this to this. But the problem is, we do have those persuasions. We do have those times when we just don't think clearly, or we don't think biblically clear. Would you agree with that? And so th- this is what he's saying. He looks Look, I'm calling you to holiness, but this is not a holiness. So you can say, well, Sherry, you, you actually you messed up 47 times yesterday. And that was before 8 a.m. You know, where he just kind of does, no, this isn't going, man, I, well, 8 to 9 better be a lot better. No, this isn't a way that he places on you. He says, well, I want you to show you how to be free because since you're still contending with this old part of you, this old ignorance that's still kind of there. I want to give you a direction. And this direction is, I just call you into holiness. But how did he start the whole challenge there? What's the first three words in the ESV? What do you think is probably the most important word out of those three words? In one way, we could make a really case for obedience, but I would make a real case for children. Okay, you people down there, be ye holy as I'm no, he says to, to his to my children. To my children. I call you my son. I call you my daughter. He establishes relationship first. Then he calls us. Remember? Indicatives? Paradise? Remember that? What has God done? And then what is the call upon our life? God always does what he does first to enable us to what he's called us into. Folks, I I promise you, you cannot even, we can't be holy even as Christians in, in the sense of being, you know, go a day without sin in our lives. But I promise you, if you did not have the very Spirit of God in your life, you wouldn't even have those right thoughts. Maybe the most important sermon right here. This is not something we are becoming by becoming, by being holy. Probably one of the biggest confusions about Christianity. I read an article just the other day. Man, I'm going to go back to church when I clean my life up. And the illustration in that little article was, it's like saying, you know, having a heart attack and going, okay, after this heart attack, I'm going to go to the emergency room. When I get well again, no. You pretty much are having a heart attack, so where do you think you should go at that moment to get help for your need? You go to the hospital. Holiness is not something that's going to make you a Christian. Here's what he's saying. As my obedient children, because you are Christians, because I've now I'm your father and you're my children, you can now have the freedom of holiness in your life. I'm going to enable you to walk without some of the difficulties that you had before. And that's the call that's here. And he says this battleground of where this battle's going on is right up here. Yes, it is somewhat emotional, but most of that battle's right here. That's why Paul in Romans twelve two says, okay, I want you to be transformed in the way that you think. Man, the transformation of the mind. You just start thinking a little bit different. The word holy means separated, cut away from. And we are called to be a separated people. i got three more pages. We don't have the time for that. But, but, but let me leave this last thing. Maybe this will help us place our next steps as we gird our, the loins of our mind and go out on a Monday morning. We are a called-out people. Would you agree that that's what the Word of God says? Not what the pastor says, but the Word of God. You're a called-out people. Now, in this called-out people, you can live one of three different ways. You can live as an immigrant, as a tourist, or an exiled person. Let me go through those a little bit. An immigrant, I'm not from here, but I've made this my home. This is not where I'm from. Kasha, where are you from? Poland. From Poland. And you're an immigrant to the United States, right? And this is your home now and we are glad that you have made this your home. We really are, okay? But that's not what Christianity is, okay? It's a great thing. I mean, let's welcome our immigrants, but that's not what Christianity is. Because is this, we're from another place, but yet this is what God has called us to make our our home? No. What about a tourist? A tourist is that, okay, I'm visiting here for two weeks, for two months, for two years, and I really, you know, I like how J.D. Greer says this. He says, I'm not really going to learn the language, and I'm not really going to do this, but I'm going to look for my Starbucks, because that's my familiarity of, you know, if you're in the middle, if you've ever been abroad, and you've, you know, you're in a place where you're eating all this food, and you're going, okay, and then all of a sudden you see golden arches. I, guys, I don't care if you have said... You know, I do not like McDonald's at all. I guarantee you, if you have spent two weeks abroad eating things that are very unfamiliar to you, that you don't even know what you're eating, and you turn the corner and you see golden arches, you're going, thank you, there is a God. <laughs> because you're looking for something familiar. You're, you're a tourist, and yet you're looking for that familiarity. Okay, nothing wrong with being a tourist, but that's not what Christianity is. The best description of Christianity from a biblical viewpoint is exile. We've been taken from our home. This is not our home. But we're here, and while we're here, there is a job to do. But it's not our home. And we'll end on this. One of the best passages that really clearly illustrates that is one of those passages that oftentimes we kind of mess up a little bit. We love love Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you. We're going, yes, God, you you know what's coming tomorrow. And that promise is there, okay? But look at the context of that promise, okay? The people were, God's people were exiled in Babylon, okay? They were under a king that did not like them, that was not gracious to them. They did not want to be there. They wanted to go home to Israel. And so they go... And they got enough of the spiritual leaders to say, okay, God's going to get you out of this in a real hurry. But it's not what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah, a prophet of God, spoke for God and then said, no, guys, here's the the good news and the bad news. Good news is that God does have a plan for your life. He's got this future for you. The bad news is you're going to be here for the whole next generation. Here's what Jeremiah told them to do. Living as exiles in a foreign land under a leader that really is not super sensitive to their needs and you know, friendly to them, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, and we'll leave. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile. Who sent them into exile? Thank you. Your life is not willy-nilly. Your life is not, somebody's not in there going, okay, spinner. Ah, sovereign God has a plan for your life. I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here's his instruction. Here's his command. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give them to your daughters in marriage. In other words, you're going to be here for a generation. Okay, You're going to be here for a while. Your sons that you have now, in the first part of the verse, they're going to have sons. They're going to grow up. They're going to have sons. You give them in marriage. That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You know what he says, guys? We're exiles. We are not tourists. We're not even immigrants. There's nothing wrong with immigrants. There's nothing wrong with tourists. That's not the biblical call. He says, this is not your home, but you are here, and you're kind of exiled here, but here's what you do. You live here, and you live here to flourish. In spirituality, because you pray for the people that you live among. Look at that last verse again. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's our call. I wish we could kind of go on to two more pages. Um, We'll get there next week. Here's the thing, guys. This call to holiness... Take it very, very seriously. But it is not a weight that he places on your shoulder and that somehow, because of your performance, good or bad, and being holy, that now you've earned your wings as a Christian. Holiness does not make you become a Christian. No, because you are a Christian, now you live a life of obedience. Why? Because I've got a daddy. I'm going to end on this illustration. Have you ever had a friend, co-worker, Somebody you've known in college or something, you've known them four or five years. And then maybe 10 or 15 years later, you meet their parents. And you find out that this friend, Jim, that he talks just like his dad. Have you ever done it going, okay, you know, I always thought Jim, you know, slurred his R's or did this or whatever, or had these mannerisms. And then you meet the parents, maybe, I mean, a long time later, and you're going, He's a chip off the old log. You know, no wonder he says his R's like that or he pronounces this or whatever it is. And you're going okay, makes sense because Jim is his son. That's what Peter's saying. Not that we become sons and daughters because we really clean up our act. No, because God so loved us, he gives us grace and mercy. He has saved us. He's given us this imperishable uh, inheritance that we have. He says, now because this is your dad, then you start acting like your dad. As he is holy, he calls you into holiness. That we're obedient not to gain something of God's good pleasure. He gave God's good pleasure when Christ died for our sins. That was God's good pleasure. Even to the extreme, you go back in Isaiah, and it pleased God to crush him. Wow, that's a tough verse. Who's the him? Jesus Christ. It pleased God to crush Christ? Go read it, guys. Isaiah. Why did it please God? Because it brought us salvation. It brought you and I. Now we're the sons and daughters of the living God. And so we just we don't do this because it's forced upon us. We don't do it because, you know, this is how you earn your wings in heaven. You do it because that's your daddy. And he set this pace before you. And now you just you act like your family. Let's pray. We love you. We thank you, Father. Father, I thank you that you make a strong call upon our lives to be holy. Father, in a world uh, where we are maybe sometimes just glad to be a little bit better than the person that we live beside, thank you that you call us into the high calling of holiness. But Father, thank you also that you didn't place it as a weight upon our shoulders that this is how we earn our relationship with you. No, you have established that in Jesus Christ in his finished work And now out of our joy of that, of being a son or daughter of the living King, we live in this rejoicing, even in the midst of trials, we live in holiness because you've just called us to this great high place. And it's actually a path of freedom. that Father, as we train our mind, as we gird up our loins to think more and more of the things that are your truth, it brings freedom to us. So thank you, Father. We praise you. Father, we give you our attention and our affection. And, Father, I pray that even this day that we just more and more say, God, will you help us to look like you in the way that we love, in the way that we care, in the way that we live. All these things we ask. And the one that made it possible, the only possible way, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.